we have an opportunity and I have so much hope in our young people. They have so many opportunities, they always have, but really to make an impact in so many areas as they go on with their education. And so um, I think we're being called to a much broader vision. Welcome to Building Ideas, exceptional people discussing inspired experiences that create an enduring impact on our communities. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com. Hi, this is Bill. Welcome to the podcast today where we have a guest with us who is not only a leader in education and education administration and fundraising, but she's also a leader in the life of the religious. She is a friend of the firm, a friend of mine, and any time you spend with her is just positive, forward thinking, and encouraging. And she just, it just emanates from her every time you're around her. And we can't wait to uh, have our conversation today. We really dive in today and have a pretty long conversation. And I asked her to do this, to, to tell us her background. And, you know, it's not often that you get a chance to spend time with uh, somebody who's a member of one of the religious orders and have them talk about their call and their passion. And so we spend that time today and we hope you thoroughly enjoy our conversation. Um, Sister Rita Sturwald is a lifelong, enthusiastic, innovative educator serving as a teacher in Catholic elementary and secondary schools, as an administrator, and for over 30 years as a friend raiser and a fundraiser. She has been the first to serve in a variety of positions locally, nationally, and internationally. Sister Rita is a member of the Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur, an international congregation of women religious serving on five continents. This Dayton, Ohio native earned a BA in Latin from Our Lady of Cincinnati College, now part of Xavier, go Musketeers, and an MA in English from Northwestern University, home of the Wildcats, Evanston, Illinois, and secondary administrative certification through the Ohio State University, go Buckeyes. She is one of a few sisters to be nationally certified fundraising executive. and She's also a member of Class 18 of Leadership Cincinnati. Chaminade Julianne High School, home of the Eagles, honored Sister Rita as a 2019 Distinguished Alumna for her professional achievements. With a keen interest in Catholic education, fundraising and marketing, spirituality and holistic living, Rita is a frequent speaker at local, national and international conferences. She is a great human being, so welcome to Building Ideas, today's exceptional person, Sister Rita Sturwald. First of all, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and I have two older brothers. One is 12 and a half years older, and the other is seven years older. My mother and dad had both grown up on farms north of Dayton. One, uh, their mailing address was Cranberry Prairie, so that's close to St. Henry. Uh-huh. The other, Fort Laramie. And they decided that they did not want to... Uh, live on a farm they my my dad really felt it was too difficult a way to make a living Mm. so they moved into Dayton and then met each other and and married and we um I went to our Our Lady of Mercy Catholic Elementary School and then on to Julianne High School for which is a a Notre Dame school Mm. so um you know we're German Catholic and with that comes a lot and the agricultural roots so a lot of that um impacts who who I am and how I was raised and from the time I was a little girl, I wanted to be a teacher. 
And I really liked my teachers in elementary school. They were Oldenburg Franciscans. And um, I was the kind of little kid where when the school year was over, they would invite me to help pack up the books, you know, and clean up the room. And when August came around, they called my mother and said, can Rita come over and help? So they, they really influenced me. And I saw most of them as very happy people. And I think that had an influence on, I know it had an influence on my interest in being a sister. And then I went on to Julianne High School and met the Sisters of Notre Dame. And I met one teacher in particular that really, she became a mentor and a lifelong friend. She died about two years ago in her 90s. But um, I was impressed by the Sisters of Notre Dame in, because every religious congregation has a little bit different personality. <clears throat> and what I found in the Franciscans was uh, down-to-earth friendliness, um, the kind of sisters who would roll up their sleeves and play baseball outside, you know, with kids. Mm -hmm. And I found the sisters of Notre Dame Dina Moore, very good educators, very bright women. They understood us and they, they were with the times because so many movies have portrayed sisters as being extremely naive and, and almost childlike. Uh -huh. And I was impressed with that these women and there was also a, a reserve about them that I appreciated. I'm going to call it lady likeness, a reserve, mm -hmm. as well as I think it was their spirituality. I don't know that I would have used that word as an 18-year-old, <laughs> but there was something about um, their spirituality that also attracted me. Mm -hmm. And so I continued to think about becoming a sister and not a Franciscan then, but a sister of Notre Dame. And as I often tell teenagers who ask me about this, um, <clears throat> boys entered my life when I was a sophomore. <laughs> and um, that was a challenge to see what direction I would actually take. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my freshman re uh, Latin teacher, she taught six classes of 42 students a day, freshman Latin. Wow. And I got to know her through an extracurricular activity that in those days we called Sodality, which a lot of girls were in, and it was to help us grow spiritually. Mm -hmm. And we're not all angels or anything. I don't want you to think that. But just, <laughs> Sodality was a big movement in Catholic schools for boys and girls. And so um, I just got to know her as the years went on, even though she just taught me that one year. And between my junior and senior year, she suggested that I sit down and think about uh, the end of my life and what do I want to have accomplished. And so I pictured in my imagination, I thought it would be great to get married and have five children. Mm -hmm. So I imagined coming to the end of my life with uh, my husband living and these five children and possibly grandchildren. And then I also thought about coming to the end of my life as the sister of Notre Dame with the opportunity, perhaps, to have influenced thousands of young people, with the idea that I wanted to be a witness to the fact that there is a God and that that God is good. Mm -hmm. Now, that's pretty high um, <laughs> endeavors for an 18-year-old, but I then decided to enter the Sisters of Notre Dame Data Moore after high school, mm -hmm. which was a very common thing. Mm -hmm. back in the, the 50s, 60s, and in, nah, not so much in the 70s, but definitely 50s and 60s. So I entered with uh, 40 other, I think there were 39 other 18-year-olds, one 19-year-old. In other words, there were 41 of us the day I entered the convent. Uh -huh. 
And that is the only time that I ever lived in a in a group that was all, you know, the same age, so to speak. And it was uh, quite strict in those days, but I wanted to give this a try and did feel that this was what I was, was being called to. So that's how I became a Sister of Notre Dame. And the Sisters of Notre Dame in those days, almost everyone was, a, you know, a teacher in formal education. So... It fit my desire to become a teacher also. I guess when I was younger, I thought I would probably teach elementary school because I liked my elementary teachers. And then having met Sister Phyllis, I ended up uh, majoring in Latin and minoring in French and English and eventually becoming a high school high school teacher. So that's, that's my path uh-huh. um, to becoming a Sister of Notre Dame. Interesting. Did... Um... And so when you were, when you joined the order and then you went to college, right? And, and yes. tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about your college journey um, to kind of through into education, formal education. Well, you know, we were, our congregation, like many congregations, were very, very strict mm-hmm. in those days. So for the first year, two years, any courses that we took, we took right on the property here at Mount Notre Dame mm-hmm. because we had sisters who were qualified to teach college courses, mm-hmm. and also the Dominican priests who were on the faculty at Our Lady of Cincinnati College would come over and um, teach philosophy and theology courses to us. Then we started going out to the campus, and um, so it took us five years from the time we entered until we actually finished our bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. and we were among some of the first groups to finish our bachelor's degree before we went out to teach. A lot mm-hmm. of these sisters, it took them and 12 years to get a bachelor's degree. So we were fortunate in that regard. And, um, you know, my college experience certainly was not like another person's because we had a rule of silence. So um, we couldn't just chit-chat even with each other or with the lay students. And we were such a big group, as were the Sisters of Mercy on campus and some other religious at the time, that, uh, for example, uh, one of our science classes they set it up, and it was just all sisters and one one laywoman. Young girl was in the class, uh-huh. but uh, it wasn't at all. You know, we you know we lived here. We went back and forth every day on a school bus, uh, maybe in a station wagon if we had late classes, and it was just a few of us. But it was we lived the routine of the, the convent life of up at five at five, and uh, prayer mass breakfast uh dishes out the door at 725 the bus was leaving and we usually got home around 24 four o'clock and with that it was downstairs for a a cup of coffee and a snack and a little bit of schoolwork and then prayer and uh dinner and uh what we called recreation you know socializing with the sisters and evening prayer and then some time for study so how we ever got a bachelor's degree on the limited time that we had to study was pretty amazing, but somehow we did it. <laughs> That's great. So on this journey, who were some, you, you referred to a couple folks. Are there any other folks who were influential for you um, um, on the, on the earlier part of your journey? Um, yes. I mean, definitely that, that my freshman Latin teacher, I mean, uh-huh. we kept in contact all along. And uh, she, for a time, she lived in the uh, in the sisters community. I mean, we were still in form, what they call formation, so we did not have freedom to just 
talk with them at any time. There were certain limited holidays and things where we could get together. So, you know, if I had any difficulties or anything that I wanted to talk over with her or further understanding of, uh, tell us about this congregation I've gotten myself into, uh, you know, she was there for me at that time. When I finished my um, bachelor's degree, I was sent to Chicago to teach 42 eighth graders in a self-contained classroom, meaning that I taught all the subjects. Okay. And I was not prepared really to do that because I had not taken any of the courses in elementary education to, you know, like uh, methods for language arts or science or any of those things. So I was sort of tossed to the wolves. But there were two sisters there in particular who really, really helped me. Uh, actually, three. One was um, the sister who was both the superior of the house and the principal. And she was like as young as you could be by canon law to be a superior. So she was 35. And she was a very free spirit. And she had great confidence in my ability and great understanding of how difficult it was to deal with these eighth graders. We were in a school of 1,100 in Chicago, uh, different nationalities and ethnic groups. So it was a big challenge. But she really supported me and helped me. And there was another teacher, teaching sister, who um, was wonderful about teaching me how to plan lessons and how to handle some of these difficult students. And then there was just an older sister who um, uh, was coming to the end of her, her teaching, but she was just a dear and just very, very supportive. So I realized that throughout my life, uh, especially in the early days, I've had mentors. Uh, we didn't call them that. But people who really believed in my potential, which I often did not see that they did. And so that is what, what kept me going. Um, because there were some pretty rough days teaching, you know, when you've got, uh, all those eighth grade boys and et cetera. It was, uh, <laughs> it was a challenge. I can only imagine. And, um, how long were you in Chicago then before you, and you've got, well, that time I was just there two years. Uh -huh. And, um, I, I think in the next year we departmentalized. So then my second year of teaching up there, one person taught three sections of math, one taught three sections of English. That was me. And the other taught three sections of social studies. So that helped. <clears throat> but it, it was still a challenge. And so from there, I was sent. In those days, we were sent. I was sent to Summit Country Day mm. when the high school was all girls. It was, 100, I think, 140, 170 girls. And Sister Roseanne Fleming had just been appointed the head of the school. And uh, Sister Rose Ann is a person whom I admire very much. I think one of her gifts is the ability to see the potential in a person and draw out potential. And an example that I can give you is um, she asked me to do a presentation for some of the parents on preparing students for college and things they needed as parents to think about. And I was quite intimidated by this because I got the impression that everybody, all the students at the summit, you know, would be college bound and that they would be from very affluent families. Um, that's not necessarily the case, but I didn't know that. So for me to be asked to give a presentation to the parents, many of whom I thought would be, you know, master's degrees, et cetera, you know, in business. Well, when they, when the parents complimented me and told me that I did a very good job, that made a huge difference to me. 
And then she would ask me to do little things. Like she would say to me, uh, sister, what are you doing on Friday evening? Well, what would I be doing on Friday evening? Correcting papers or <laughs> wouldn't be going out anywhere. <laughs> well, could you go upstairs to St. Cecilia's just at a quarter of seven, just to greet the parents as they're coming in for the boys' school concert? And just say hello to them and welcome. And then, you know, that you don't have to stay for the concert. Or, you know, I'm meeting with the alumni board. So about 8 o'clock, could you go down and, and, you know, get a tray of soft drinks and bring them up to the alumni parlor? Or what are you doing this evening? Could you come and stuff envelopes? Uh, I'll pay you time and a half. And I said, Roseanne, no matter how you figure it, one and a half times nothing comes out the same way. <laughs> but she was... She was always asking me to do these things. And she asked me to take over the um, alumni newsletter. I, I had never overseen a newsletter that would be professionally printed. Um, she had me work on the schedule for the high school, you know, we, because you're a very small operation, but you still have all the, many of the same jobs that you would have in a big school. So she was always asking me to do these things. And that is what I feel that she really did for me is that she saw um, the potential there and kept inviting me to do things that were brought out. And then um, she also encouraged me along with others, but I remember me specifically to get started on my master's degree. Mm. And so I did leave Summit after three years, but I did then um, begin to work on my master's degree and I researched universities that had good programs in English because I was not going to go in in Latin. Uh-huh. It was it was going out of vogue in the schools. It wasn't being taught. Yeah. So I knew there wasn't going to be a future in that. So um, I applied and was accepted at three three schools to get a master's degree. And so I went on to uh, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, mm-hmm. and that spent four summers there. That's where I got my master's. And um, I really uh, appreciate the fact, you know, again that he pushed me to to start on that degree, which I did. So by that time, after three years at the summit, I went to, I was invited by my friend and mentor, Sister Phyllis, my freshman Latin teacher. She was chair of the English department at Mount Notre Dame. So she invited me to come and teach there, which I did. And after I finished my master's degree, she had moved on to be principal of a large girls high school, 1400 girls in Chicago. And she asked me to come up to Chicago and chair the English department. So I put her off for one year, and then I did go the next year. So I spent 15 years at Notre Dame High School in Chicago. Um, And again, she was principal there for several of my years while I was there. And then um, another sister became principal. And when that sister became principal, she had been the director of admissions and recruitment and communications. And I went to her and said, you know, I'd like your job. Because after seven years, I felt that I had given everything I could to the English department. It was time for new leadership. So she had a notebook all laid out and and her name was Sister Nancy. And she said, here, take this notebook home. And, uh, after you see what the responsibilities are, come back and tell me if you're interested. So I, I did that, and uh, I thought, how difficult can it be to give the same presentation 40 times, you know, going out to elementary schools to recruit students? Well, <laughs> it's not really the same presentation every time. It's a different audience. So um, I came back and told her, yes, I'd like to do this. So many weeks went by, and I wondered what was going to happen. And one Saturday morning, I got 
a telephone call from Sister Phyllis, who was the outgoing principal and my friend and mentor. And she said, uh, we will consider you for that position, provided that you be get a development office to raise money for the school. And I said, oh, I'll do that. I always wanted to spend years fundraising. Mm-hmm. So um, I began that development office from nothing. We had hundreds of lost alumni because, you know, women change their names and sometimes more than once to find all those people. But um, with that, building on some other public speaking experience that I was blessed with, I was out almost every day between September and Thanksgiving giving talks in uh, mostly Catholic schools, a few little private schools, and uh, occasionally a public school. Uh, come to come to High School, come to Notre Dame High School. Plus, I was also a director of admissions and then director of communications, so I was doing press releases and and setting up a development office and figuring out what that job was because development offices in high schools like ours were a rather new invention. So I had to find uh, seminars and things and colleagues that I could I could learn from. And I spent um, eight years there as director of development. And then I, I eventually had an administrative assistant and also an assistant. So uh, that's, that was a wonderful experience because when I went there, I left Mount Notre Dame with about 600 students. And I went to Notre Dame High School with 1,400 girls who eventually came from 150 different elementary schools. Wow. 70 public, 70 Catholic, and then they had a lot of different little private schools, sectarian or Greek or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So hmm. building a student body from such diversity was quite a challenge. And living in a big city like that and adapting to a big city was, was huge. And teaching um, students from the city. I mean, they didn't drive to school. Uh, not even many of them had parents drop them off a few did or boyfriends dropped them off but um they were different ethnic groups um you know we don't have at that time we didn't have a strong population of italian or uh, maybe irish but it was italian irish polish and then eventually it became um there were more hispanic students more african-american students more um filipino and asian students so i am so happy that i went to chicago because I experienced um, a different kind of student, different experiences from living in that big city. And they, they taught me many, many things. And it was truly a very creative time in my life. I was much younger and, you know, I would take on anything. And uh, <laughs> You'll still do I that. Did. You still do I, that. I, I do. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But, you know, something too, Bill, that I have learned. Um, and I think this is God's action. Every every situation that I have been in professionally has prepared me for the next one. So with, you know, my elementary experience, I learned more about how to manage students than any college class could have taught me. Thanks to uh, some tough experiences in that school, but also the mentoring of our sisters. And when I went to Summit, uh, it was a different population, you know, again, and it was an academy, which was different from my own personal experiences in Dayton. And so um, 
I learned, and I learned, as I mentioned, a great deal from Sister Rosia and the um, mentoring um, and the invitations that she gave to me, you know, to do this or to do that. And then to Mount Notre Dame. I was a much better teacher by the time I got to Mount Notre Dame because mm-hmm. now I had five years of experience behind me. And um, again, it was a place of many opportunities. And Phyllis was there one year as department chair, but I really felt the administrators really trusted me and, again, had a lot of confidence in me and invited me to, you know, take on moderation of, of, you know, moderating classes or um, we started a literary magazine, didn't have that before, and I was asked to help with that. So um, then that experience, you know, uh, by that, by the time I went to Chicago, I had my master's degree, I had 10 years of teaching experience, and I had um, much more, you know, classroom experience. Um, we had a very, very creative curriculum at Mount Notre Dame, and so Phyllis wanted me to really work with the staff in Chicago to develop a more uh, creative and relevant English curriculum, which which I did then. Took the ideas there that would work, and uh, did that. And then, and then when I left Mount Notre Dame High School, Chicago, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so somebody, one of our sisters, told me that there was a new position being created at the Archdiocese at our Catholic Schools office, and that I should go and talk to the superintendent. Mm -hmm. And I thought I might want to even work at the university level in uh, development. I wasn't sure. So I I did some other interviewing. But I went to visit Sister Catherine Ann Connolly, and um, she wanted to do something with development that she wasn't for the schools, but she wasn't sure what it was. And I asked her, do you have a job description? And she said, no, you know, she said, I should, but I don't. And I said, well, you know, I've been told that I should never accept a position if there's no job description. So that was May. So I go back to Chicago to finish out the year and still not knowing if I'm going to remain in Chicago working or come back here. So I was down here for a job interview and I called her middle of July, and I said, Catherine Ann, uh, uh, as soon as I got her, she said, oh, really, do you want that job? I said, well, Catherine Ann, I don't know. Do you have a job description? So, no, she said, I don't. So, okay, so then I go back to Chicago. I come back here again, and um, I looked at a couple of things, and it was the first time in my life I ever had to put together a resume and really go out and, you know, do interviews and put on the business suit and, you know, all that kind of thing, so myself. <laughs> So that was a big challenge. So I came back and uh, getting toward the end of August and I was getting a little down because I was missing not going back to school. So I called Catherine Ann and I said, well, Catherine Ann, and she said, oh, you have the job description now. And finally I said to her, well, would you like me to write it? Oh, Rita, would you? (laughs) (laughs) I wrote the job description for the first assistant superintendent for development (laughs) for the Catholic schools. And it was approved and I got hired. And, uh, that was that was a great job because I was only on the job a couple of days when I had to go over to a, a marketing agency because the high school principals had developed a strategic plan, 85% of which was marketing to build enrollment. Uh-huh. So I was um, given the task to go over and uh, look at this first ever TV commercial that was being created to promote the Catholic high schools and uh, give my critique of it, et cetera. 
and uh, then, you know, began to work with media to buy radio and TV time and that kind of thing. So I had so many opportunities, but the reason she wanted me in that position, because she, after about two years, I said to her, you know, Catherine, I've often thought, you should have hired a 25-year-old with a marketing degree. I said, because I don't have a marketing background. And she said, Rita, I knew when I met you, I wanted you because you have all this experience. You built things from the ground up at Notre Dame Chicago, and you will have credibility with our administrators because you you know the steps that are involved. You know how difficult it is. So... Um, it was a it was a great time because I uh, I began doing workshops. I put together a marketing task force to help me, and I sat on a marketing committee up in Dayton and uh, really oversaw the the media here in Cincinnati and got to know uh, people in the media. And uh, you know, for a number of years, we we did TV commercials, we did radio commercials. Um, at that time. Jim Scott used to have me on in the morning <laughs> occasionally to talk about Catholic Schools Week coming up. Uh, we did a big diocesan celebration for Catholic Schools Week. And then when the National Catholic Education Association brought 10,000 educators to our city in 1995, I was in charge of all the local uh, PR and local special events. And that was just an amazing experience. Uh, involved lots of people in the schools to help me with it. And all of these projects, I always depended on the high school development directors because it was my responsibility to meet with them four or five times a year to help them grow professionally. But, you know, they were on committees. I had committees to plan the Catholic Schools Week activities in this area as well as Dayton in the North and uh, had a small committee to help me with um, the local events for the uh, NCE, the National Catholic Education Association. I mean, we had a we had a special dinner at the King City Club, and Bill Bennis was no, no, no. Uh, Warren Bennis, I believe he was the U.S. Um, Director of Education at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and we flew him in early because he was the keynote speaker. So he came and spoke at this luncheon at the Queen City Club. To get the CEOs there and other educators, and we had an evening on the riverfront with fireworks, and we had a big celebration with hundreds of students on Fountain Square. And um, I thought, when I was that the day I was there on Fountain Square, I thought, you know, I don't have my own children, so I don't know what it is to be a proud parent. But I think this is the closest thing to it because the committees that I worked with, you know, helped me develop all these events, and uh, I was just so proud of what the people who worked on these committees had been able to to accomplish. So, um, as I said, one thing prepared me for the other, and then I was, um, Catherine Ann asked me if I would be the director of the Catholic Inner City Schools Fund, Feist, <clears throat> because our director had left and I was sort of filling in. So she said to me, if I take you out of your responsibilities in Dayton and give you a, an administrative assistant, will you do that along with your other your other work? <laughs> you know, here in Cincinnati, and I thought, well, I don't know. So I thought about it, and I said, yes, I would. And the benefit of that was that there were many benefits. It was the first time I really felt that I was carrying out my congregation's commitment to serving the poor, because while I was not in those inner city schools, I was working with the principals, and I was working on behalf of them, by working with the corporate community to raise money 
by working with the parishes to raise money and um, supporting, uh, providing support for this person who um, ran this annual raffle for years. But it uh, it put me in touch, you know, <clears throat> with um, a number of the, of the major CEOs here in the city and um, with with media. And so when I became when I came back here to be president of Mount Notre Dame High School, um, it really you know it, it really was very helpful to have have uh, built those relationships and made those contacts. So after two years of uh, being assistant superintendent as well as uh, director of SICE, I I did resign, and I said you know this organization will never grow until it it gets a full time director. And so I did what I could to um, enhance its efforts and behind the scenes to put a lot of files in order and that kind of thing. And that then did um, uh, encourage and put some pressure on Sister Kathy Mann then to find a, to hire a, a full-time director of SICE. And it was the right decision. And uh, some people wanted me to remain in it. And no, I just, I just knew that it, it needed somebody else. And uh, we got a wonderful director who stayed with it, I don't know, 11 years, 15 years, something like that. So um, I, I may be telling you more than you want to know, but I mean, one one thing has led to another. Huh. So then I went on sabbatical. And uh, <clears throat> midway through sabbatical, a member of our international leadership team, because the Sisters of Notre Dame are on five continents, we're international. So she, midway through, through sabbatical, I was out in Massachusetts. And it was a wonderful program. And she said, would you come up and talk to us? So they needed somebody who had a background in uh, fundraising and communications to do a research project to find a way for um, us to integrate our national and local efforts at development and uh, communications for our ministries to connect those with our international efforts. And that meant that I would need to move to Massachusetts. And so I thought about that, and I, I agreed to do that. So again, I had to create a job description and um, figure out what to do. And actually, they had asked me a year or two before, and I did not accept at that time. I was still at uh, not Notre Dame. No, no, I was still at Notre Dame, Chicago. No, I was at the Archdiocese, pardon me. Um, so they came back again. And I decided to do that. And that was an amazing experience because I needed to, to visit um, our development offices in California, in Ohio, uh, in New England. And then I needed to go over, I was asked to go over to England and Scotland because they say they do not raise money. That's not part of their culture. So one of the sisters said, but, it, but they do do it. I want you to talk to the people and see what they're raising money for. And then I, uh, as I developed this position and made recommendations, then I, there was a meeting, an international meeting in uh, Lima, Peru, where we would have delegates come from all across our five continents. So I was asked to do a presentation at that, at that meeting, as well as um, previous to that going over to Belgium and doing a similar presentation for our leadership from uh, Great Britain, Europe, and Japan. And of course, um, I had to learn not to use the word development 
<clears throat> but use the word fundraising. And the funny thing about that is when I was new in development, it was a matter of not using the word fundraising because fundraising is a subset of development. Development's a lot more things. You know, it, it's communications, it's strategic planning, it's uh, friendraising uh, in addition to fundraising. And so, and it's a, you know, it's plan giving. It's a big, much, big, much bigger picture. But for other cultures, the word development means the development of people. It doesn't mean raising money to make sure that an organization has the, the resources to carry on their mission. So that was a little switch. But <clears throat> what an opportunity I had to go to Peru and um, see the work that our sisters were doing there and the incredible conditions under which they lived, as well as other people, and then meet our sisters from all parts of the congregation, which was uh, a new experience for me. So that was wonderful. So after I, it was my, this was a two-year assignment to create this office. So um, I then did a lot of research with other congregations, et cetera, to make a, a number of recommendations, which I did, and passed those on then. And so now we do have a congregational mission office uh, out in Ipswich, Massachusetts, with, with many more employees than were in that office and, you know, trying to do international fundraising um, when I first started that. Hmm. And then I moved on from there and decided I wanted to do something different. So I worked a couple of years as uh, director of the annual fund at the College of the Holy Cross, which is a Jesuit college. Which oh, then yeah. I needed to move to Worcester. I think I've shared with you my parents. My father was from Western Mass, so grew up around Springfield. My mom met him when she was a teenager, and they moved there. But uh -huh. his his um, very special kind of father figure was his priest, um, and uh, his priest was a Holy Cross graduate. And so I've always heard about oh. Holy Cross since uh, Father Scanlon was his name, and Dad's got great stories. I'm sure you, if I ever connected you to, you'd talk a lot about East Coast and, but he talked about the Holy Cross and Father Scanlon and apparently his priest's uh, roommate was a Yaki boy from Boston, oh. <laughs> and hence you know yes, that the, yes, hence yes. the family that yes, owned the Red yes. Sox. So I've heard all about yes. Holy Cross throughout my whole life. So yes. that's awesome. So I learned a whole lot from that experience. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Uh, because you know. They raised six million dollars a year in the annual fund, and that's you know that's now how many years ago? Twenty years ago. That's a lot. Um, they just had a four hundred and some million dollars campaign recently. But anyhow, I learned a lot from that. So then I got a call one day from Mount Notre Dame, and, um, the principal, Maureen Baldock, and yeah, you know, know said, Maureen you know, well. the board is thinking thinking of having a president and a principal, and so would you come back and talk to us and um, about this? and your interest possibly, and your qualifications for it. And I immediately said yes, because I really loved teaching at Mount Notre Dame when I was there as a teacher. Yeah. And I have a special spot in my heart for that school. So I did come back, and I was interviewed, and I was offered the position, and uh, really, really enjoyed it, and feel blessed to have brought back, uh, you know, the experiences uh, that I had built on over the years. So I would say to anybody, you know, when you are offered an invitation to do something that you may not feel comfortable doing, um, think about that and think if you're willing to stretch yourself a bit. Because when I left there, I went on sabbatical, and then the congregation asked me, and they, they had asked me a second time, 
would I develop a new office, the United States Office of Mission Integration, mm-hmm. to work with our administrators and teachers and eventually students across the U.S. to really keep alive our history and our values. We have seven hallmarks of a Notre Dame school. And work with them because in many instances, we no longer have any sisters in our schools. And um, so I did it. And I was able to um, have an office here as well as in Ipswich, Massachusetts. And I got to see our schools, visit with administrators all across the country. And our schools are alive and well. It's very inspiring to, to meet people and their dedication and their understanding of our values and their commitment to preserving them. They are our living legacy. And um, we began annual meetings in the summertime, bringing our administrators together to get to know each other, support each other, provide in-service for them. And then another sister was hired and we our um, responsibilities were expanded to include working with boards of trustees and doing board formation. And we began then having summer workshops and bringing students together. And we would have them come out to Emmanuel College. And that was wonderful. I loved being with young people. And it was wonderful for the students to meet other students in Notre Dame schools and what they have in common, even though the background of the school, the socioeconomic background of students may be different. But we have these core values. The students loved it. And the administrators loved getting together. And then my last summer in that job, we had an international meeting uh, where we brought educators and others together from uh, across the U.S., but also some came from uh, different countries in Africa, from our schools there, as well as from Belgium and from England. And that was the third such meeting. And actually, the very first one had been held here in Cincinnati in 2006, and I was on the committee to plan that one. So, um, as I said, every, you know, accept an invitation, even if it feels a little uncomfortable, and who knows where it's it's going to lead. So, um, that's the journey that I've been on, Bill. That's a heck of a journey, sister. And I knew bits and pieces of it, but it's really awesome to hear the, the whole story of how you are where you are now. Now, one of you the, know, it, it is, it's wonderful. It, it's one, you know, you look back and you, um, I'm more of a present and future person. So mm-hmm. I don't usually take time to sit down and, and look back this yeah. way. But as I said, how blessed I was that one thing built on another. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm sure grateful you are for that decision you made. Oh, as a yeah. young woman at Chaminade High School, which is now, or Julianne High School, sorry. And now, yeah. now they're one, Chaminade Julianne. But to That's make right. that decision at Julianne High School and to where you are today. So one of the things we like to talk about is inspired experiences. And you have been all over the place, you know, Chicago, all over the Midwest, the world, East Coast. Um, what are some places that have inspired you in your journey? Well, working with MSA Associates oh, and planning... The, the renovations <laughs> of Mount Dame High School, that was a marvelous experience. And I remember when I was a young sister at the summit, and a ground was, we had a groundbreaking ceremony for the new, at that time it was a new um, ungraded primary. And Sister Roseanne, of course, was the, um, the head of the school. 
ever since that time, I always admired the courage of a woman to build a new building. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yet, <laughs> I just have to look at the history of our sisters everywhere in the the, uh, the buildings that they have built. So it was fun for me to, and, and risky, to um, think about expanding Mount Notre Dame, the uh, facilities. I knew, and but I knew I wanted to do it, and I knew we needed to do it. We we mm-hmm. had an old facade that needed updating for lots of reasons and different kinds of spaces, and also the athletic field. And while I'm not an athletically inclined person, I truly value athletics, and I, I have that value primarily from being at Mount Notre Dame and seeing what athletics do for the students. And um, I had the opportunity to, you know, be there when we, I mean, they have very good programs. I think everybody knows that. And it was great to be there as part of that. But um, I enjoyed working with the architects. I enjoyed um, envisioning, seeing what what could be. And then, of course, um, the challenge to uh, see what we could afford and figure out how to raise the money for that. But it was a very enriching experience for me to to work with you and, and, and other architects in the firm uh, in terms of designing this new space that would be helpful to the faculty and the students and attractive to students to coming to our school and how important it was to, to have an athletic field here because that yeah. too would bring uh, students to our school and they would athletics are important an important draw today along with the academics so um that's one answer to that question yeah i can tell you two of the most inspiring places i think i've ever been as far as buildings go sure and one is st peter's basilica in rome Yeah. yeah and even just being out in vatican square and just standing or sitting and watching all the people who walk through there is an amazing experience. And the other is a place that I still want to go back to another time, and that is Holy Cross Chapel in Sedona, Arizona. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, Bill, or not. I don't know. But um, have. have you been to Sedona? I have not. It's on my list. It's on my bucket list. Well, you know, you get off of the interstate and you go on this you know, state highway, and all of a sudden you you take a bend in the road, and all of this gorgeous red rock opens up in front of you. Yeah. And you drive a little further, and there is this magnificent church built into the hillside. Mm. And there is something about that structure and about that area that is mesmerizing. And the the chapel was built, uh, I believe it was it was in honor of a woman from New York. It was in honor of her parents. And I believe she may have been an architect. I'm not sure. But it is in memory. And you see all kinds of people who come there. And um, the chapel itself is not real big. But just to see the people come into that chapel again, I, I would sit and watch this, see the people come in. For some, it's a tourist attraction. For others, you see them kneeling there deeply in prayer. And um, it's just, and then they often play Gregorian chant in the background, which mm-hmm. is also a very soothing kind of music. Mm-hmm. It, it's just an incredible experience. I've been there a couple of times. 
And if I go to Sedona, I just have to go and spend some time at that chapel. It just, it just draws. And somebody who did some energy work said that in Sedona, there are a number of energy vortexes. Uh And some are feminine energy and some are masculine energy. Uh And summer spiritual energy and one of the vortexes is where this chapel is and i said oh yeah. so yeah, people I'd... may be drawn there and not even know why they're drawn there you know it's funny you bring up saint peter's basilica and you know as we've talked i'm you know my father's catholic i was raised methodist and protestant which is what amanda and i identify now as protestants but uh when i was in europe in the early 90s um you know with a group student group we were in rome for a period of time you know architects go to rome and one of my good friends was Still to this day, he's a devout Catholic. And so he said, hey, can we go to morning mass? We were in Rome. I want to go to morning mass at the Pantheon, and then I want to go hear the Pope's address in Vatican Square. I was like, sure, love to go. So I went to mass in, in Pantheon, which was long, all in Italian, in Latin, and there's no seats. So I was a little uncomfortable, but it was, it was great. It was a really wonderful experience, and um, Michael, my good friend, really enjoyed it. And then we went to hear the audience of uh, John Paul was Pope then. And he was not, he was sick at the time, but he did, he did, they did like a broadcast because he was inside mm-hmm. of the apartments and it was mm-hmm. just such a neat experience. Um, and, you know, it meant so much to my good friend, you know, it was a, a really important moment to him and, you know, and he was such a, regardless of people's faith or, I mean, uh, John Paul was a really, really amazing leader for the Catholic church, I think, you know, and for yeah. the world and yeah. to yeah. listen to his live address and to see the tens of thousands of people there, it was it's just a really amazing place. And then architecturally, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. you're like, they did this before cranes? How in the heck? I mean, it's just, um, yeah. Yes. And I also had a, an opportunity a long time ago to um, visit the, the cathedral in Chartres, mm. France. Mm-hmm. And oh, my goodness, that is another oh, yeah. absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing place. Um a couple of years ago when I was working nationally, there was a, the Vatican sponsored a meeting about Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. So educators came from many, many, many different countries. And the last hour and a half of our conference, uh, Pope Francis joined us. Mm. And the anticipation of his arrival into the uh, hall where we were meeting with him it was just incredible. You know, it was, it was palpable mm-hmm. because we knew he was coming and we didn't know exactly what moment, you know, and it was, there was a break in the, uh, the meeting changing from, you know, what was going on with the meeting until he would come. But that was an incredible experience to see him also mm. really, really special. That's awesome. So, um, we're in some crazy times right now. We've talked about this and, you know, how has 2020 impacted you personally you as you in the order you know um there in the complex in mount notre dame how has it affected um the life you know of, of you as an educator and and as a leader in the sisters in notre dame 2020 is a challenge for absolutely everybody and uh, it's a challenge for all of us too we have a health center here on the property, and because of that, while I don't live in the health center, I live in another residence, um, we do have stronger restrictions, I would say, than if I were not living on the property. And one of those restrictions is that even our sisters who live elsewhere cannot come onto this property. So 
so um, when this all started out, we were not used to, this is just a small thing. We were not used to cooking and eating up here three meals a day. We have a very small kitchen. Um, and so I'm part of a community. It, it was 14 or 15. Now it's uh, down to 12. One passed away, but not from COVID. And two others in the meantime have, since COVID began, or since restrictions began, have moved over to the uh, assisted living near the building. However, um, we didn't, we didn't stock a kitchen. We didn't, I hadn't cooked for eight people for 30 years. So we were with the same six, eight people on this floor all the time. We were having to pick up chores. And um, the age range on this floor right now, I guess it was then too, from 69 to 92. So, um, you know, people have a lot of needs. You're with the same people all the time. And those of us who are so used to being active and being out with others, and engaged in another kind of ministry, I find this difficult. Yeah. And so as time went on, after several months, and the people on the third floor, they're part of our community, they were finding it difficult too. In addition, um, one of the sisters became ill and ended up in the in the health center and um, confined, which is very difficult for those sisters. And so um, we thought, well, what could we do to alleviate, you know, some of the stress from just these simple things? So Sister Judy Tensing, who was one of my heroes, she has a Venice on Vine. She's the place downtown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great pizza. But they've had to close. Yeah. And she has it because she does training, job training, which she had to stop because of the social distancing. So we knew that that's that nonprofit is struggling. So would there be any possibility that we could ask Judy to, you know, prepare dinner at the restaurant there with, she's got a couple people there with her five nights a week, bring it out here. And then we, 12 of us that eat together on the second floor, which would give us a little more conversational exchange and, you know, interaction with a few more people. And um, also just take some of the, the stress off of it because people, some people just aren't, they're not able anymore to do, you know, that kind of cooking. Yeah. She was delighted. And she said, you know, the, she and the person who's the CEO, they were talking about what else they could do. And this experiment has worked so well. It's no longer an experiment, but she is expanding this service. And now they are, um, has some clients who over in the Hyde Park area who live in high rises and that kind of thing, people who cannot get out, but people who could afford to, you know, have a meal delivered to their home. So a couple of sisters are going to be taking telephone orders, you know, and this is a way of also providing some revenue for this very important work. Yeah. And I know from Judy that they now have six, People, they've been interviewing applicants for the training, and I think they've settled on six people that I'll start with after the first of the year. So it's going to be a win-win all the way around. But um, the confinement, you know, and really yeah. we are really discouraged from going out. For a long time, we too could not go out, and I guess nobody could go get a haircut because hair salons were closed. But even grocery shopping, I mean, they've asked a sister who's in her 60s, who's younger than we are, to do our, our grocery shopping, and so we make up a list every week and email it to her and then you know, she brings the food over. So it's that it is the confinement like everybody. And then time has a strange way because I said we, we had a session with um, a woman who has a strong uh, 
psychology and, and uh, social work background, who worked for us for a time in life transitions. And we, we called on her and, and hired her for two sessions, Zoom meetings on, you know, how to deal with, um, what are some practical tips for dealing with this time? And interestingly enough, she started by asking us to look at losses in our own life. Not just religious life, but losses in our own life and how they affected us. And then since March and then currently. And it was an opportunity for her to do some input about loss and trauma and loss and trauma together. And to realize that if we have not dealt with some of the losses in the past, without even realizing that they can impact how we are coping or not coping with the losses of this time. And I just said, you know, I personally, one of the things I, and then she got us to share, and she has a, a tremendous ability to get people to, to share more deeply. And, and she's very non-judgmental, but very good at facilitating. So we had one two-hour session on that, and then she came back about a week later, and we talked about strategies for coping. And that has, has really helped, too, because, you know, we've got, as I said, the, the range of ages here is, is quite significant. And um, we all have different capacities for resilience and acceptance of one another's foibles. And I think, you know, it's, it's on a continuum from day to day. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the biggest thing, like everybody else, is the confinement. And I said, you know, for me, I feel like we didn't have a Lent. We didn't have an Easter. I never thought I'd say this, but you know, like I really wanted to be in a church where we could sing Jesus Christ is risen today with a wonderful choir and congregation. Yeah. And we didn't even have mass. You know, we haven't had mass in the chapel yeah. um, for a long time. And so, you know, and then we, I've had a ton of family birthdays. Um, this is a jubilee year for me, a special anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually celebrated in June and then we were going to celebrate in October and you know, probably now we're celebrating next year, maybe. But <laughs> Jubilee anyhow, plus one. Jubilee plus one. That's what it's going to be. That's right. Jubilee plus one. So those are just some of the things yeah. for for me personally. And I, I miss, you know, getting out to lunch and, and getting out with, you know, friends and various contacts and yeah. the things that I would do socially. So, so that's part of it. And then over on the health center, our hearts ache for those older sisters on the second floor of skilled care. Yeah. They have eaten in their room by themselves since March. Yeah. And on the first floor, uh, for a time, they weren't able to go to the dining room, but then arrangements were made where they could face them at the tables. And they did something for Thanksgiving last week that the entire first floor community, which is about 30 sisters, could be in the dining room together. And that's the first time they were together in the dining room. I I can only imagine... You know, being near each other, being sequestered from each other, has got to be really tough. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. these are strange times. So, but, um, but you know, but we've done a lot of things though, uh, as a group or as individuals, you know, to kind of cope with some things. So, for example, um, one person in particular has been on the alert of different Zoom programs that we could do from like Catholic Theological Union or Xavier University or other places, and. All of us, you know, have followed very closely the uh, political situation and the whole um, racial injustice. And so I think many of us, if we're able, have taken an opportunity 
to participate in, you know, some uh, meetings by Zoom that we might not otherwise have participated in. And it certainly has called us at times to gather together and pray, you know, for the legislators in our country, um, for the people who are suffering from COVID, for the first responders, the people and the people who are out there giving the care. So that is very much on our minds and very much in our practice also. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked about the impact you all have. And, you know, one of our areas we like to talk about on the podcast is enduring impact. So Sister Rita Sturwald, or Rita Sturwald, the the leader, the educator, um, the compassionate person, you know, what advice would you give? And I know you do this as part of your regular work. What advice would you give to individuals, companies, organizations um, that would help them have an impact? What's some Rita Sterling you know, wisdom? What's some wisdom? <laughs> you know, I love that question because um, occasionally I, I talk to, I've talked to students in the classroom and I'm, I'm honored if they ask me, what advice would you have for people our age, you know? Um, I learned a term when I was on sabbatical some years ago, called axial age, A-X-I-A-L. I've never heard that term before. But it means it's a, it's a time in society, in our culture, when practically every institution is in some way collapsing or changing. And it's, the, it's kind of the, the downslope before the rebuilding. So I think that one thing we have to do is... Um, we have to have a sense of hope. And also the, the challenges that we have. So one of the words that has been used so much is like pivoting. So, so many, in so many instances, educators have had to pivot. They've had to go from, you know, regular classroom instruction, and then they have three days to change, you know, to total, total schooling from home. And so I think, um, our institutions need to really be open to change without sacrificing the values on which they were built. And so I think that um, when I think of our own uh, as a religious community, we're international. I think that um, we have to look at servant leadership. We have to look at definitely openness to change and not change for change sake, but because of the changes that are being called for. I think we have to look at character. I think we have to look at integrity. Um, I'm always impressed by people who succeed, but, you know, it's not about them. I think that that is a big thing. I think we have to look at, at power and the sharing of power. And definitely at, at diversity and the benefits of diversity. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things, you know, that we that we have to look at and realize that the tremendous opportunity and responsibility that businesses have to make our world a better place for everybody. And whenever we do that, it means that we're going to have to give up some things that have been very comfortable for us. And we know change, change is not easy. And generally, the older we get, 
uh, it's not easy. But I think we've all been pushed into certain changes. Yeah. And we have an opportunity, and I have so much hope in our young people. They have so many opportunities, and they always have, but really to make an impact in so many areas as they go on with their education. And so um, I think we're being called to a much broader vision. This morning I heard uh, the man from the UN talking about climate, and he feels that we around the globe are on a suicidal path unless we do something, all of us do something soon about climate change. And, you know, to think that, that, in other words, one of the commentators said, so what you're saying is that we're all standing on the cliff and you're trying to encourage us, don't jump. And he said, that's right. Um, do what we can. And so I think we, we as, a, as, a, as a world family, we need to really look at the decisions that we make and how are they impacting our brothers and sisters around the world. And so... Um, I think we have to look at the distribution of wealth. I am not a socialist, for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, just the, the disparities, and it, it breaks my heart to think that we have people in this city who are starving. We have children who are going home hungry. We are having people who, you know, have many, many worries that we do not have. And I'm very, we're very much aware of that. So when you talk about organizations changing, I think diversity can be a big thing in an organization, and, and uh, but everybody around the table has to count, and uh, the young and the old, because we cannot lose the wisdom of older people, yeah. but we definitely need the creativity and the new the new outlooks of younger, and we need we need to be present as mentors uh, to younger people also to give them a sense of of confidence and stability. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's the old phrase? Those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> something yes. along those lines. Yes, no, I think those are. Great. And you know, I would say too, um, from the reading that I've done and some workshops that I've attended, I have a lot of interest in holistic living and understanding dreams and energy and mm-hmm. a lot of those things and things I wish I would have known when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. Um, here, more and more people talking about. There is a growing number of people who have a higher consciousness. And when I've read this, I've said to people at times, but how can you say this when we see the violence in our cities, when we see the prejudice, when we see, you know, the the lack of human respect in, in so many ways? How can we say this? I'm a firm believer that it is true and that we do not hear enough about the good that is going on, mm-hmm. the organizations that are doing good for others, yeah. the people who are looking at things from a much more global perspective with the understanding that we really are all connected. And one of the books that I read that was such a challenge for me was something called um, Field of Compassion. And field has to do with quantum physics and an energy field and the kind of energy that we create around us. And so, in essence, one of the things that the author said that really struck me is that, Bill, if I don't treat you well, I'm really hurting myself because we are all connected to the same source of energy. Mm. That's a real challenge. 
So um, how can we more and more want to hear the good news? Because we know that that so often we're, the media is more interested in, in some ways we are too, yeah. the latest catastrophe, the latest scandal, whatever. But how, how can we um, really see uh, so much good that's happening around us all the time? And um, I think that's extremely important. I think as, as individuals, um, I think a certain a certain openness and, and again that sense of hope. Mm-hmm. And for those who who believe in a higher power, who believe in God, I mean, if we do read the scriptures, Jeremiah has a wonderful passage, you know, that I know that the plans I have for you. Mm-hmm. And it's for a future for a full of hope, not for destruction. Mm-hmm. But the realization of that vision depends on the strength of God and the commitment of those of us who who can live out uh, change on a daily basis. I really want young people, but probably everybody to know, each of us is really here for a special purpose. And each of us has very unique, we, we have unique gifts. And you could say to me, well, do you know what your purpose in life is? I, I don't know. I probably won't know that till I die, really. I, it has something to do with education, I'm sure. And it has something to do with a relationship with God. But um, helping young people see, because I'm concerned about young people mm-hmm. in that um, their isolation at this time, it is really, really hard on them. Yeah. But if they can get through this, they are going to have an amazing resilience. But they need to have people in their lives who truly care about them. Because, as I've just said recently to some young people, you need to find a a mentor, somebody that you can really trust, a friend or just a wise advisor who's had more experience than you do. Because when you don't have experience, and you can't because of your age, there's nothing wrong with that, some things take on the proportion of a crisis that they don't really have to, and that's not to under undervalue the pain or whatever, but when you're dealing with a person who's had a series of ups and downs in life, they have the wherewithal to tell you that you can get through this, that others have also, that you have what it takes and you know to, to help you move forward. But that's a, that is a concern of mine with young people, um, that they can get overwhelmed by so many things and not, not have the openness to share and not know with whom they can share so that they are truly accepted in the struggles that they have. And at the same time, helping them realize just, there are big challenges out there, but, you know, I just truly believe that they're so much more aware as young people than, than I was. And so they have, they have great opportunities, and they are doing great things. Mm. So many of them are doing great things. Indeed. I think uh, I've heard this phrase in a couple places, that really this is one of the best times to be alive in the history of humanity, even though we don't realize it, right? <laughs> I mean, there are always tough times and certainly issues all around the world, but when you look at the whole scale of human existence, recorded history, we know at least, right? That this is 
it's a great time to be alive. And so I think we forget that at times. I think, like you say, you know, it is, and it, and it, it is our time. Yeah. And I, I, and I think even for myself, I'm surprised I just said that, but I think Uh even for myself, I can get up on a daily basis and not, not realize that's a gift too. It is our time. So how, how can I, how can I become even more aware of, of some of these, these social issues? And one of the things about being part of the Sisters of Notre Dame Dana Moore is that many things. First of all, our founders, who was born in 1751, and we talk about St. Julius as we saw her yesterday. You know, her vision of God is goodness. And so if we're called to be witnesses to goodness, St. Julie Billard lived through the French Revolution. She had a good friend who helped her co-found our congregation, who was to have been guillotined. Um, St. Julie could depended on other people because for a number of years she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk. And yet she got through this and at age in her fifties she started this congregation. She had this vision that the education of young women in France was going to be um, the rebuilding of French society, the rebuilding of the Catholic Church, which was in shambles at that time, too, and uh, the rebuilding of family Christian life, because she believed that if you educate a girl, you're most likely to educate a husband and a family. So she had this strong belief in education and the education of young women. And I think that she she has much to speak to us to today because of what she lived through. And of any saint I know, she seems so real to me. And of course, we've, you know, we've had an opportunity to learn a lot about her. So I think we have, we as a congregation have something to offer. In addition to that, we really do um, have priorities of caring for women and children and for the poor in the most abandoned places. And so, so while I could not do the work that Sister Judy Tensing does down in, in, over the Rhine, um, she is there, therefore I am there. And we have Native sisters native sisters in, in Congo, in Kenya, in Nigeria, um, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, in Peru, in Brazil, in Nicaragua. I could not be Sister Rebecca down in Nicaragua, who's just been through two terrible storms, mm. a great deal of political violence in the last year. Um, she went down there and ended up really trying to assist parents who have handicapped members of their family and the number of things that she's done down there. We have a sister who's gone down to help the Haitians build a bakery and now build a plant to um, sell bottled water that's been purified. So the things that our sisters are doing at great personal sacrifice, plus our own sister Dorothy Stang, who was murdered in Brazil 15 years ago, because she stood up for um, the poor peasant farmers whose land was being seized from them. And she she had a tremendous understanding of the environment. I was amazed at what she knew because she lived in such remote places. But she was very well versed in that. And I learned more about her after she died than I ever knew when she was living and her accomplishments. So being a member of this congregation, is a great blessing because of the diversity that we have in the congregation. But what inspires me is the number of people who are truly searching today. Yeah. They're searching for meaning. They're searching for spirituality. And they're searching for community. 
And we have those things. And um, the question is, though, how can we attract and how can we change enough so that we can be viable, a viable way of life for people who are searching, who want community, who want meaning in their lives? Mm. And that's where I think we need to re-envision ourselves and we need to invite other people who may or may not be interested in becoming Sisters of Notre Dame who can look at us from the outside and say, this is how you hold on to your core values, but these are things that you need to do in order to meet the needs of these times, these times in education, these times in service to the poor, these times in uh, uh, service to women and children. So those, those are some of our our challenges. Well, sister, this is uh, this has been some good stuff. Um, a phenomenal interview. Um, and, uh, it's been good to, I wish we were breaking bread together. Like we periodically do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and hopefully we'll post vaccine. We can uh, have a nice lunch together and reconnect, but, um, I, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast with us today and, and kind of sharing your history and vision and, and your always positive optimism about the future, which I think is a blessing to all of us who know you, who know you. So, um, Again, give our best to everybody up at uh, Mount Notre Dame on the in the the complex up there in the mother house and the in the health center. Yeah. And um, I look forward to um, seeing you again soon. And uh, thank you for the great work that you do here and elsewhere to bring um, new life to to communities through your work as architect. Oh, thank you so much. We're we're blessed to be able to do it. So. You take care and stay uh, healthy and safe, and we will see you soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA Design, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com.